2: Right Rug Flooring.
0: perfect home sweet home the,
3: the podcast playground
1: Hooray! i'm buzz knight the host of the Taken a walk music history on foot podcast follow us at apple Podcasts, spotify or wherever you get your podcast please share this episode with a friend Leave us a review as well uh, at Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And you can also sign up for our newsletter at Takenawalk.com. You could leave us comments about guests that uh, you'd like to hear. Maybe you'd even like to suggest uh, yourself as a guest. Today, we have a member of Rock Royalty. John Anderson is the iconic founding member and lead singer from the English progressive rock band Yes. This is a band that has been a soundtrack, certainly to my life and to so many of you. And uh, so glad to take a walk uh, down music history uh, with John Anderson from Yes. We'll also talk about upcoming projects for him in 2023. So welcome to Taking a Walk with John Anderson. Well, John Anderson, I'm I'm truly honored and grateful to uh, have you on Taking a walk, you've been a large part of my life uh, for, for so many years.
3: Excellent, Buzz.
1: <laughs> so when was that moment in time when you first realized that you were a musician, that you were stuck in this business? At what moment was that?
3: When I stopped working on the farm <laughs> with my brother. Because my brother and myself we worked on this farm about a mile or so away from the home. In Accrington, northern Northern England. And uh, we get up every morning at 5.30. And all weathers, you know, snow, rain, or shine, whatever. And we we get on a bus and go up to the farm. And uh, we got on the farm and we'd go out and start milking the cows and shoveling a lot of cow poop. <laughs> and singing. We sang all the time together because we were fans with the Everly Brothers. This is 19... 19- Fifty eight, fifty nine, and then Buddy Holly came along, and so we sang Buddy Holly, and, and then uh, what's the guy with the dark glasses? Um, Roy Orbison. Into, Roy Orbison. What a what a guy! And uh, so basically, you know, we 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 uh, my brother had a band, you see, uh, and they were called the Warriors, or sometimes the Warriors. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, there were two singers. There was my, my brother and a guy called, um, I can't remember his name, but he, he, was, he, was, he wanted to be a hairdresser. <laughs> so he left. he left the band. So my brother said, why don't you join the band? You know, we can do Evely's and I'll do Elvis Presley and you can do Roy Orbison. And so I said, yeah, let's do that. Screw this working hard on the farm. I wanted want to get out and tour the world. Not knowing that it it would happen, but, you know, you wanted to. And that's, you know, that's when I started to realize being in a band was more fun than shoveling a lot of shit. (laughs) (laughs) Some might say
1: it was a different version of shit you had to shovel at times, right?
3: Well, I don't want to to go there. (laughs) Uh, But it was a breakthrough for me to, you know, to realize that uh, we could travel. We had a van and we traveled and all over England and Scotland and Wales, and uh, eventually we went to Germany to follow the Beetle Trail. Now, the Beetle Trail was very simple, that you play in a club eight hours a, a night, and then you go two weeks there, and then you go to Munich, then you go to ha- uh, Hamburg, Copenhagen, back to Cologne. So, that's what we did for about six months, and by then, we were frazzled. My, my brother left the band, and I'm with the, with the guys, and I think I took a lot of, um, what was it called? Acid. <laughs> <laughs> Just like everybody else did, you know, the Beatles had Sergeant Pepper and Revolver and everything, so music was going, you know. And that's that's how I stayed in the whole idea because you know I just had a problem that I kept hearing music in my head like big time ideas and and, uh, I go to see the guys in in the in the bedroom next door and say come on guys it's ten in the morning let's go and rehearse and they would say f off John. And for the second morning, I went to the and said, guys, we've got to rehearse. Come on, guys, we, we could be a great band. F off, they all said, in unison. And so I piped my bags and left the band. And that was probably the best thing I ever did. It was kind of frightening, but I did it.
1: Do you remember the first time you heard Sergeant Pepper and what your reaction
3: yeah. was? For- Hamburg. I was in Hamburg, and my, my friend... Uh, Brian Chatton was a keyboard player He had a hat with a balloon hanging from it that With, with a hot air So the balloon was up in the air like that And we were actually singing all the songs Because we'd spent all night singing them And that's all we did all for about a week We sang every song, every word And smoked a lot of marijuana <laughs> <laughs> And a few, a few taps of acid You know, come on It was rock and roll so that that whole
1: London scene in 1968 uh was a hotbed of of real creativity, right? Everything seemed to all styles seemed to blend together uh musically. There was a little bit of this and a little bit of that. Can you talk about some of those styles then as Yes was was first formed?
3: Well, I think the 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 great music that I was hearing at that time was um Buffalo Springfield, The Beach Boys, great recordings, um, Zappa, oh my god, you know, it was like, and then I, I got turned on to jazz by, I met um, Keith Jarrett, <laughs> he, was, he was 18 like, at that time, young guy, and then I started listening to a lot of very various music at that time, and, and uh, that's when I went to London and I, and I met Chris, uh, and we were sort of like brothers right away, and We both had the same intention, and we both loved uh, Simon and Garfunkel. The album had just come out. You bridge over troubled waters, and just great new music. And that's that was London, and it was all like that in New York and L.A. Everywhere in the world, uh, we weren't alone with the idea that music was like a, a, an open door, like of because you didn't because I was probably by then about twenty six. I thought I was too old to be a pop star. So I just wanted to write some music, and and I started studying uh, Stravinsky and Sibelius, and that's changed my life. You know, I've, I've just I've just been walking over the hills and far away around the, where I walk every morning, listening to Rachmaninoff's Third Piano Concerto by this lovely lady called Martha. I can't remember her last name. Argonaut. She's a, 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 a an incredible. Uh, uh incredible uh, performance and uh, i've been listening to it for the last month every day you know every day you keep learning you know you, you learn structure and that's what i was doing with chris and the, the yes when yes started all i could think about was structure and uh, you know and let's just do this kind of an idea that kind of idea and happily at that time everybody listened
1: you had a description of a band that you saw that's pretty incredible that really influenced you, called the Mahavishnu Orchestra, and your review of that, uh, seeing John McLaughlin and band there. Um, I love it how you said after seeing Mahavishnu that you couldn't breathe; it was such yeah. an experience.
3: Unbelievable. It was, it was like everything rolled into one. It was like Zappa meets this band meets that band, and all of a sudden this band on stage, and they didn't have a singer. They just played this music, which was a miracle in, in a way. Me and Chris stood there, and we'd had the same experience about six months earlier with uh, King Crimson in London, watching them do their first show. They played the whole album in the court of the Crimson King. And it was magnificent because they just learned it, just recorded it. And that was their first performance in this club. But seeing my Vishnu was like another level. And it just, um, I think it sort of opens up your state of consciousness, you know, about music. And uh, and that time I was uh, lucky to meet Vangelis and start working with Vangelis. And that was another stepping stone to... Musical sort of discovery
1: Well so when you were Working at the Marquee Club That was a place that you Encountered a lot of people As they would roll through And play there everybody from um, Pete Townsend And some other notorious yeah. Characters yeah. Yeah. Uh, One of them was Jimi Hendrix Who I think yeah. you, you you encountered oh.
3: everybody, everybody Encountered Jimi Hendrix
1: There's What did you guys do together when you hung out?
3: me? I just, just, nothing. I was, I was stunned. I actually saw him for the first time in Munich and he came back to the house that I was living in. I was living in the closet. These two lovely girls that were looking after me because I was out of my brain. And uh, he sat down and smoked a joint with me and he didn't say anything. He didn't have to say anything. He he just performed on stage like a a, a God Messiah from, from another world, you know? And uh, then I met him again um, he got up and performed with Rasan and Roland Kirk on a, in a jazz club in London for an hour, spontaneous, and that was my first uh, real, real taste of pure jazz. You know.
1: Wow. Um, uh, so, so with stimulants, you encounter Jimi Hendrix. That's pretty incredible.
3: Yeah, he was a nice guy. He, you know, he was. He'd, he'd been there and back a dozen times. You know. That kind of guy, that you know, he knows who he is, what he does.
1: So, in terms of these these major influences, the Beatles, as an example, Simon yeah. and Garfunkel, as an example. So, yes, would then go on in those two instances to honor those artists by by covering their music. Uh, can you talk about those two? Uh, amazing examples of uh the tribute yes did to those to those artists with the great music that you put out
3: well it was it was only uh <clears throat> we, we went on tour um when we first had our first album we went on tour with um gosh i'm gonna forget his name that'd be terrible um Freedom. He had a big song called Freedom. Well, Richie Havens. Richie Havens, yeah. So Richie Havens and his two guys who were with him were were magnificent. They they would put on such a great show every 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 gig. And uh, there was a song called No Experience Necessary. And I said, Come on, we got to do this uh, in honor of uh, Richie. Man, what a beautiful guy. And that's what we did. And uh, I remember we used to do um, as an encore. We used to do. Um, Oh, you tell Isaac, and I can't see. You can't because 'cause you're laughing at me. I'm down.
1: <laughs> yeah, we're gonna,
3: we're, I'm gonna do that next <laughs> next spring.
1: I love that, There's but you also did every little thing too.
3: Every little thing, yeah. You're reminding me, God. Yeah, I think we were just. Searching for what to pl- what to rehearse, you know, we were, we'd rehearse a couple of ideas. Me and Chris had written. Chris had written one. I had a couple more ideas. I think it took a, a little time for us to tour together and get to know each other better. With uh, at that time, it was Tony K and Peter Banks and Bill Bruford. You know, it's funny because when we first started rehearsing with his with Chris's band, the drummer had left to get a gig in. He had a, a gig in France. And I say, why? Why is he leaving the band? We, we, that's first day, you know. We, done, we haven't even started. He said, "Well, he gets he's getting paid." And I thought, "Oh yeah, <laughs> I get it." That's <laughs> so when we got Bill Bruford.
1: And then you would you would do this amazing version of America, uh, yeah. As well, um, what a amazing song and what a, a great version that Yes did.
3: Yeah, I remember Pete we said we we're gonna do America and then we didn't see Pete for a a day. He came another day later and he started playing um the the which was a great part of the, the song itself. You know, it's I think that was it. But I don't know Keith Emerson had done it on keyboards like crazy wild. I mean that whole uh West Side Story was a, a boon for musicians because it was just so beautifully done, great songs.
1: So the first tour was quite a quite a band, bunch of bands together. The first tour was was the Who, Rod Stewart and Small Faces, Joe Cocker, uh, uh, Yes, and the Crazy World of Arthur Brown.
3: Yeah. Arthur Brown, he he would sing fire. He had this sort of uh, crown that was uh, gaslighting, and he'd light his head up, and it, all, all the fire would come out of his head. <laughs> it was a great show. My, everybody went on for 10 minutes except The Who. They played for as long as they want because they were The Who. And Pete Townsend actually spoke to me on the last gig. He said... It came up I was watching Joe Cocker on stage, and, uh, and I met Joe Cocker when he was sixteen. It's a lovely story, which is in my memoirs, the story. And uh, so, Peter, a very tall guy, stands behind me and he's watching, watching Joe. And he said, "John," and I thought, "Pete, Pete's talking to me." John, <laughs> your band is very good. I just want to let you know, your band is very good. And I kept thinking, Pete Townsend is talking to me. <laughs> I can't believe it. And then he said, I'm doing an album about a blind, deaf, and dumb guy. What do you think about that? And I said to myself, Pete Townsend is talking to me. <laughs> I didn't know what to say. You know, What do you say to that? And then Tommy came out, and that was just extraordinary, you know. <laughs>
1: Did all the bands on uh, a tour such as that? Did everybody get along? Was there was there peace and harmony on the tour?
3: A lot of drinking <laughs> in those days. A lot of drinking and a little bit of uh, marijuana. <laughs> yeah, everybody got on well. You know, yeah. No issues. No, that came <laughs> later. You know, that came later in in, in the dark days.
1: <laughs> yeah. So, um, when you think of favorite venues uh, that you've played with, yes, whether it be um, big stadium venues or smaller venues, what are some of your favorite places that uh, that you uh, still enjoy playing?
3: Well, of course, you know, no matter where you play, the audiences are great. It just there's so many places that we played. Um, over the years with yes uh, magical very magical times and uh, i reflect on that when i when i'm on tour i I actually love small theaters i played uh, my solo show in new york at the uh, bb king little club around the corner on 5th avenue 42nd street whatever they were great shows you know and then we do Madison Square Gardens. with yes and what, what the hell? All these wonderful people, 20,000 people for five nights. And you go, I can't believe this is happening, you know. So you have, you know, in, in life, you know, you have extremes. So, you know, now I, I'm happy. I'm more happy just to tour. Um, I've been touring with these young teenagers, the Academy of Rock. Paul Green, who invented School of Rock, has the Academy of Rock. And we've toured. Last August, which was just incredible fun because I said to them, Why don't we do, you know, close to the edge guys, you know? And they all said, Okay, (laughs) did you started doing it? You know, it's like they didn't argue, they just said, Okay, we'll do that, you know? And uh, they were just brilliant people, uh, young people, very wonderful. Uh, And you you, you get the chance to do that in a lifetime, you know? we, We did it 20 years ago with the School of Rock, when it was the School of Rock. And I've done it a couple of years now with the Academy of Rock, and we're going on tour next summer, Europe, with Academy of Rock kids. And I, I feel like a kid when I'm with them until we do a selfie. <laughs> we do a selfie, and I say, who's that old guy? <laughs> it's me. <laughs> it looks
1: uh, so, uh, the fun looks so contagious at uh, the School of Rock events.
3: Yeah, because you know they're they're not beaten up yet <laughs> hopefully they'll never get beaten up emotionally about this crazy business that we live in you know and survival is all down to music if you can get your next level of consciousness about music that's a survival thing and it makes you want to just make more music whether it's whether it reaches people or not it's not the point it's just making new music and uh it was only about Gosh, it was 15 years ago when MP3s came up in the computer. You could use an MP3 and work with people around the world, you know. send it, And I put an advert on my Facebook saying, musicians wanted, send a minute of your music, and if I like it, I'll get back to you. And I got about 100 people over a period of a year or so. And I got back to about 20 of them, 25 of them, and I'm still in touch with them because they were very, really talented and they understood that they could create music and I would sing something that I would never sing with anybody else because it's them because they are this music and uh, I met so many wonderful people over the years via the internet so that's uh, an interesting idea that music should never stand still in your state of consciousness you gotta next level next thing I gotta say I'm gonna sing <laughs> Rachmaninoff's right <about enough> third <laughs> I started writing lyrics to it, because they're beautiful melodies, you know. And I thought, well, well why not? I'll, I'll probably write some uh, lyrics to Rachmaninoff's third piano. <laughs> Keep me out of trouble.
1: Music really is a, a healing force, isn't it, John?
3: Yeah, for sure. I I remember as a kid, you know, I'd sit by the, by the uh, radio, where the radio st- stood on the floor, and I'd sit by it, and I'd listen... And the things that I remember are um Vaughan Williams music and uh Holst, Planet Suite, Mars. It used to freak me out <laughs> as a kid. And and then you listen to um just beautiful orchestral music. And then of course, as I said earlier, you know, you you, you start listening to uh, very American music. Uh a lot of rock and roll is the essence is American. It's, it's, it's kind of it's kind of because uh, where I where I was listening to was um, old. Uh, they called it skiffle in England, and and it was actually songs from uh, country and western. So the country and western were the birth of rock and roll. I don't know how it happened, but there was a certain element of um, whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> or something like that, that The drummer just, you know, really stick to it You know, bass stick to it And, uh, oh, Chet Atkins What an incredible, incredible guitar player Brilliant So all that stemmed from Amer- American energy And of course R&B came from American So we have sort of uh, Mishmashed everything, I think And it's kind of cool as well
1: So we have this mutual friend uh, Lee Abrams Who yeah. is uh <laughs> legendary uh, consultant, inventor, innovator, um, and uh, he certainly was gracious to, to connect us. Talk about what Lee Abrams means to the band, yes, and to you personally.
3: Well, it's, it's kind of a, a crazy story, but um, I think Lee will enjoy this, is that he used to come and hang around the band with a couple of other three other guys and we'd see them in Miami or we'd see them in Chattanooga or see them in, in New York. Or, and there they are again. It's that guy again with all his friends. And, and uh, so we got to know each other and they hung out like a fan of the band. And he was a very interesting guy, but I never really connected with him closely. Chris did. Chris, Chris and him got into a whole world together for, for a while. And then uh, strange things happened, but I really got into the idea. I've been listening to, um, I've said this many times, but I've been listening to Sibelius's uh, Seventh Symphony, which is a, a glorious piece of music. And uh, <clears throat> I was on tour doing uh, some can't remember which t- tour it was, but I was definitely Fragile. It was a Fragile tour, and um, I was listening to this music, and then it I put it on, and then after a while, I'd listen to it, and then it stopped. And I'd look at the, the, the cassette, and it was like, it said, 26 minutes long. The Seventh Symphony is only 26 minutes long. And up until then, i have been listening to symphonies that were always in three parts. That First, second, and third movement. But this was the first 26-minute piece that held my state of mind. And, uh, and I just went, wow, that's amazing. And at that time, around uh, America, we were playing um, a lot of colleges. And uh, the, the college radio was FM radio. And they would play the hell out of, uh, you know, Starship Trooper, which is like seven minutes long, where any other record uh, radio station would play anything under four minutes, John. You know, three minutes, 33, it's perfect. So it really made me a bit confused that there we were making Heart of the Sunrise. (laughs) It's a piece of music, you know. I'm sorry, it'll never get heard on the radio, though. And... uh, so I thought, wait a minute, I found radio, that's the key. And I got together with Steve. I said, Steve, why don't we just do this music and we'll make it into a long-form 20-minute piece of music? And then he, he said, um, I've got this this idea. He goes, close to the end, round by the corner. And I sang, down at the end, round by the river. Because I've been reading uh, Herman Hesse, Siddhartha, who found spiritual energy down by the river. So we sketched out, during the course of the Fragile Tour, we sketched out an idea for Close to the Edge. And interestingly enough, we started recording it, and Chris was on board, and Bill loved it. Everybody loved it, and the idea of it. And, well, we're going to just do Close to the Edge and two other songs. That's all it is. We've got FM radio all over America, you know, Meanwhile, behind the scenes in America, Lee Abrams came up with an idea. <laughs> AM radio, you've got 40 songs to play in the space of whatever, and that's what we're going to do from now on, all over America. So by the time we released Close to the Edge, there was, nowhere to, it, there was no FM radio. So <laughs> it was like, Lee Abrams, you... No, Timori. <laughs> but then, you know, a few years ago, we bumped into each other on tour with the kids, I think it was, and 20 years ago, 10 years ago, and, you know, he's a he lovely guy, and he's, he's kind of my, he's, he's like my, um, what's the word, uh, guide to what's happening in... in in, in the world on many different levels he's such a smart guy so me and Jay we just love the guy when we go out for dinner whenever we' in Chicago and but I, I he sends me a weekly update of what's happening in in the world and he's right on the money there is that that we're sort of going the wrong way on every kind of level that one of the craziest things that that, that hit me about a month ago was watching uh, with my my grandkids, uh, I was watching um, children's TV, and it's, it's pretty wild and crazy, but then there's these adverts that are just aimed at the kids that, who are just waking up to life, and they're dangerous. They're very dangerous advertising. It's very dark and dangerous. I don't like it. And then, you know, we all know that the media, media is just making money because that's all they're interested in. They don't care what the advert's about. Sort of thing, and that's been a very dangerous position to figure out. Though, how how can we move forward consciously if we're teaching our kids to go and buy something they, they don't really need that much? But it's like materialism, isn't it? And if materialism, and this was taught to me by a wonderful guy called Long Walker, uh, a beautiful uh, Native American guy who walked uh, the length of America to ask for justice for the treaties that were never kept. Anyway, he said young people they're caught up in the materialistic world and they'll never come back they'll get lost in the materialistic world. And it's nothing to do with Madonna.
1: <laughs> yeah, right on. Well, Lee is Lee is he is a sherpa to where we are in the present and where we're we're headed uh, in the future.
3: Yeah, I think it would be good if, you know, stick him on TV. Come on, you know. Come on, Lee. Put on a show.
1: <laughs> so in closing, I would like to get your uh, reflections um, on the loss of uh, Jeff Beck.
3: Oh, God. I, I was it was only a couple of months ago, I was listening to Jeff Beck. Uh, I, I just... I'd, I'd seen him perform live. I'd seen him with the Yardbirds, and I'd seen him in London. And he was—he was—he was such a, a character that could—I could never speak to him at all. You know, he just got that look about him. Don't fuck with me. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> but man, he could play guitar like nobody. I'd never heard anything, anybody play like that. And uh, a lot of people discovered how to do it. Brilliant, brilliant artist. And it's it's just natural that eventually they have to go home, you know, like we all have to. And that's okay. Same with uh, Alan, you know, my best, he was my best man, you know, Alan White. Yep. But, you know, eventually he, he had to go home. And same with Chris, you know. So people keep... Uh, heading in that direction. I think it's just the next world. It's another world. It's another, not this world. It's the next world. And that's what I sing about quite a lot these days, that we're living in a a very transitional world, and we don't need to look very far to understand the next world. I think all you have to do is sit very quietly and listen to the birds sing. Ta-da. <clears throat> and that's my final word.
1: <laughs> Thank you for the joy that uh, that you continue to give us uh, good luck on School of Rock or anything else you have up your sleeve. And in, in this this year.
3: Um, oh, yeah. This year I'm doing the band geeks in uh, we're, uh, April. Come and see the band geeks and John Anderson doing epics and classics. The Band gig, somebody sent me a tape of them performing Yes songs in their studio and I thought, wait a minute this sound just like the record not, not just like the just like the record and a year ago I got in touch with a bass player Richie who said, Richie you're crazy, you're playing Yes songs exactly like they were recorded and he said, yeah, that's what we do I said, well, it's amazing why don't we go on tour with you? I said, yeah, with me, we could go on tour and do, you know, the classics and the epics. Because I, I, I've always wondered, nobody's going to play the epics like they could be played. And they said, thank you. <laughs> I said, okay, Richie, we should do it. And we actually have been rehearsing yesterday. And they sound really, really good. So it's going to be a great show for anybody who loves Yes. And we're going to be touring the East Coast. In April, uh, and then probably later in the year, um, the West Coast, but very much later, like December, January, something like that. Never a to- no moment for
1: you, John Anderson.
3: No, no, I've got to get on with the next project. I was, I was, then that's it. I'm going to sing uh, the melodies from uh, Rachmaninoff's Third Piano.
1: I love it well I hope next time we, we, we won't be virtual taking a walk and then we could actually take a walk in person but uh, I feel like I would, it was just about there with you
3: Buzz, where do you live?
1: I live outside of Boston, John
3: well come and see the show
1: you better believe it, I will be there
3: I'll get you tickets and you can backstage meet and greet but we don't do meet and greet these days because the COVID's coming back no, I can't get into that <laughs> well, it's not coming back. Don't worry. It's okay. It's just- anyway,
1: so everything's going to be all right. I'm very grateful, John, for everything. Thank you for uh, being on.
3: Take care, Buzz. Taking a Walk
1: with Buzz Night is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts,
0: or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles,
1: That's ChumbaCasino.com.
2: No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield Restrictions. Supply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA.